With what shall I come before the Lord? How can I approach God? What can I give? What does God expect from me? These are questions we've all probably wondered or asked in our life. But to better understand this answer, let's take a second to recap the book of Micah up to this point. Micah is mainly speaking to the southern kingdom, the kingdom that believed themselves to be God's holy kingdom. Better than that evil northern kingdom, they hadn't abandoned the worship of the God of Abraham. They still had a temple in Jerusalem. They still went through the motions of rituals. And yet, a case has been laid out before them. It's proving them guilty. Guilty of idolatry, granting any measure of devotion that belongs to God to any other object, idea, or person. Coveting, an obsessive desire that continually occupies one's thoughts. Injustice, letting personal gain take a precedence, not treating everyone equally. And deception, not being vigilant and discerning truth from lies. It's a good thing we would never be found guilty of any of that. Throughout this book, Micah brings a paradox. There's judgment that God must confront this evil among his people, but hope that God's covenant love and promise is more powerful than that evil. So that brings us to our passage for today, chapter six. After this case is presented against Israel, they answer with a plea. What then shall we bring? Greater sacrifices, more gifts, my firstborn? They're asking, how do we save ourselves from this coming judgment? But the answer they receive isn't greater gifts or more sacrifices. Instead, they hear, what is required of you? To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Simple enough. Aren't we all born with a sense of justice deep in our bones? Children will be the first ones to tell you, that's not fair. And we all want kindness, also translated mercy. We want to live in a world of kindness and mercy. This is such a simple charge we've been given here by Micah. Micah 6, 8 is a popular Christian verse. It's on Christian signs and calendars and pillows. And that's good and that's right. It gets at the heart of how we're supposed to live. But what does this really look like in our day to day? It says it's what's required of us. Do you feel the force of that word? Required. So let's really consider these three things. To do justice, to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Did you notice that even this holds a paradox? Justice, mercy. Do justice, love mercy. If you really think about it, justice seems to leave no room for mercy, and mercy seems to ignore justice. We saw this in the parable we read earlier. We hear this story of the landowner and we think, that's not fair. That landowner was not just. That the last workers got paid the same as the first. Okay, sure, 
We see kindness, we see mercy, but justice, do we see that in the story? We don't want to live in a world without justice, where the senseless violence and harmful actions forever go unpunished, where mistreated and vulnerable people have no hope. But Gandhi famously reasoned, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. And, Ham and Shakespeare, in his play Hamlet, wrote, use every man after his desert, and who should scape whipping? For honest, we also don't want to live in a world with only justice. Shakespeare finished that line saying, use them after your own honor and dignity. The less they deserve, the more merit is in your bounty. Take them in. Now let me give you a Shakespeare spark note version of that quote. If you pay everyone what they deserve, would anyone ever escape a whipping? Treat them with honor and dignity. The less they deserve, the more your generosity is worth. Lead them inside. Treat them with honor and dignity. Do justice, love mercy. So back to our parable. We might begin asking ourselves, is this what I would want for the ones who only worked an hour to get paid the same amount as the first? And I start thinking, if I was one of those first workers, or if I had heard about their story, their fatigue and their pouring sweat, just to get paid the same amount as those came at the end of the day, I would be angry. I would feel the injustice the fact that they weren't treated fairly. But if I was the last one hired that day, or I knew their story, how they've been left standing idle, how they've been continually looked over, and how they'd finally been seen, I may want this to be a story of mercy and kindness. So, what makes it nearly impossible to do justice and to love mercy? When we put ourselves in the picture, when our first focus is on what we think we know about a situation, which brings us to walk humbly with your God. And let me suggest we should start here with this requirement. And if we can get this part right, I believe doing justice and loving mercy will follow a unique justice and mercy that only comes when we're more focused on God's way instead of our own. I don't think this passage is calling us to sit in the judge's seat, because scripture tells us we're not qualified for such a place. Yes, we are to do justice and to love mercy, but rarely do we get the opportunity to see the full picture to know it all. So, you ready for another paradox? We had judgment and hope, justice and mercy, and now, humility. Have you ever thought of the paradox that is humility? That if you really possess it, you probably don't know. But if you think you have it, you may not know what humility is. 
There once was a woman who had been working on being humble for three full weeks. And finally, she reported to her friend, I've done it. I have mastered the humble nature that God calls me to. Wow, her friend said, you must be really proud. <laughs> it's a silly story, but it gets at the heart of how hard humility can be. It's not easy. Because humility is not self-exaltation, but it's also not self-abasement. It doesn't exaggerate, nor does it minimize. With humility, there's simply no comparing. And thanks to social media and technology, we live in an age of comparison. How many likes or shares did my post get? Wow, that family really seems to have it all together. But at least we're doing better than that lot over there. True humility has no place for that. Comparison has no place. Because humility is secure. It's accepting. It's neither better nor worse, bigger nor smaller. It's not focused on itself. But this passage is about more than just practicing humility. It's calling us to shift ourselves and our own knowledge out of the center so that we can humbly walk with our God. We're reminded of Adam and Eve who walked with God in the garden before their prideful sin of wanting to be like God forever changed the relationship. Kurtz and Ketchum put it so well in their book, The Spirituality of Imperfection. The spirituality of imperfection begins with a recognition that trying to be perfect is the most tragic human mistake. In direct contradiction of the serpent's promise in Eden's garden, first of all, we had to quit playing God. According to the way of life that flows from this insight, it's only by ceasing to play God, by coming to terms with errors and shortcomings, and by accepting the inability to control every aspect of our lives, that any human beings can find peace and serenity. Walking humbly with our God, depending on God in all circumstances, instead of our own accomplishments and our own abilities. Knowing we'll never be able to sacrifice enough, to offer enough, to exercise enough justice, to love mercy enough, and even to mess up enough, but finding peace and joy in that knowledge. And through this humble walk, transforming into an imitation of the one we journey with, a God of justice, a God of mercy. Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy says, there is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness, because embracing our brokenness creates a need and a desire for mercy and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't otherwise see, and you hear things you can't otherwise hear.
While we're embracing our brokenness, I have something to share with you. I am hopelessly directionally challenged. My inner compass is broken or maybe missing. The first two times I ventured out of my hometown alone, I got terribly lost. I mean, terribly, embarrassingly lost. And I even had a GPS in the car with me. <laughs> my sense of direction is so bad that at certain points in my life, I would take a minute to assess which turn to take and then go the opposite way of whatever I thought was right. <laughs> which is why my loved ones were shocked to find that I had become the guide for my seminary class on a trip to London. Navigating through the public transportation and walking the streets forced me to slow down and take notice. My senses were engaged through the architecture, the sights, the sounds, and even the smells of the city. Some of my favorite London memories came from those walks. I remember the conversations I had with my classmates or sometimes how we journeyed in silence. Walk humbly with your God. Walking together means relationship. It means being encapsulated and engaged. It's not a one-time thing. It's a journey through mountains and valleys. Just to be clear, we did not face any mountains in London but we did conquer more than our fair share of stairs. So take a moment, reflect on a meaningful walk you've taken, either with company or by yourself. Where were you? What made that walk significant? Do you have it? With that memory saturating your mind, consider again this requirement to walk humbly with your God, to journey together, to be wholeheartedly engaged, to face the highs and lows along the way, to walk through times of conversation and times of deep stillness, and allowing this walk to inspire our exercise of justice guided by our love and longing for mercy. Remembering that learning to walk takes time. It takes dedication. It takes getting back up after we fall down. None of these three requirements call us to specific concrete actions. Instead, they're calling, on us, calling us to a lifelong, transformative walk. With what shall I come before the Lord? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. May we all first learn to walk. Amen.